Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 6 of Employment Law Matters with me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. Today I'm discussing constructive dismissal with expert employment lawyer Mark Jones of Mark Jones Law. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. If you're an HR professional with a difficult case, you can get answers quickly from the extensive resource library in the HR inner circle. It takes just two clicks and a quick keyword search using our rapid results search tool. You'll instantly find where your topic is covered in our extensive back catalogue of monthly magazines and audio seminars. In under 30 seconds, you can find exactly what you're after. It's that quick and easy. www.hrinnercircle.co.uk And what if you need a specific legal insight? Then you can pose your question live to an expert employment lawyer in our fortnightly Q&A sessions. It'll either be me, Daniel Barnett, or one of my prominent colleagues. You'll get your answer immediately without having to pay any legal costs. And if you can't wait, you can find where it's been answered before with a quick search of previous Q&A sessions. Our clever index system means you can find any question and in a single click get straight to the recorded answer. But perhaps you need to deep dive and explore the different options open to you to solve a particularly tricky problem. Then join one of our monthly HR huddles. There you can run your specific situation past other HR professionals in a private Zoom call. They'll offer their insights, share their experience and work with you to find a solution that works for you. You'll find all of this in one convenient place, the HR Inner Circle. Have a look, www.hrinnercircle.co.uk for more information. Let's turn now to constructive dismissal. Mark Jones has specialised in all areas of employment law for over 25 years. And over the years, he and I have worked closely together on many cases, including reported decisions on agency workers, on whistleblowing and on restrictive covenants. Mark qualified as a barrister before transferring to become a solicitor. He's previously been a partner in four firms of solicitors and head of employment law in three of them. In addition to his own practice, Marjon Law, he works as a consultant for other firms of solicitors and is a qualified workplace mediator. He's also the editor of ELA Briefing, the official journal of the Employment Lawyers Association. The legal definition of constructive dismissal is set out in section 951C of the Employment Rights Act. It says an employee is constructively dismissed if, and I quote, he, this is nice and sexist, he terminates the contract under which he is employed with or without notice in circumstances in which he is entitled to terminate it without notice by reason of the employer's conduct. That's a long definition. Now, in summary, there are three elements that have to be present for constructive dismissal. Number one, there's a repudiatory breach of contract by the employer. We can look at each of these in turn. Number two, the employee resigns in response to that breach. And number three, the employee must not have waived the breach, meaning they mustn't have ignored it and accepted it, for example, by delaying too long before resigning. So let's break that down. 
What is a repudiatory breach of contract, Mark Jones? Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Daniel. Well, in short, uh, the employer must have acted in such a manner to have destroyed the basis of the employment relationship. Uh, It is not sufficient that the employer has acted unreasonably. It It goes much further. The breach of contract, uh, when I say the breach of contract, the repudiatory breach may be actual or anticipatory. Uh, And that is to say where the employer demonstrates an intention not to be bound by the contract in the future. Just pausing one moment, Mark, are we talking about the written contract or the wider contract that represents the relationship between the parties? We are talking about the wider relationship. So, The breach itself, that may consist of a one-off act or a continuing course of conduct extending over a period of time uh, and in some instances culminating in a last straw. But it must be sufficiently serious to justify an employee resigning. Now, identifying what constitutes a repudiatory breach of contract is often far from straightforward. In practice, an employee must, one, identify the alleged breach of contract. Two, they must establish the evidential basis of the claim, which is usually in dispute. And three, They must satisfy a court or a tribunal that the facts as proven are sufficient in law to amount to a repudiatory breach of contract. Okay, well, let's look at some examples. You can get breaches of express terms or implied terms. Can you give some examples of express terms, breach of which would normally amount to a constructive dismissal? Well, the obvious one is is the failure to pay wages. That would be uh, that's wages is a fundamental term of the employment relationship, uh, and if an employer doesn't pay wages, that would be seen as a repudiatory breach. Other examples could be uh, removing uh, an employee's key duties or changing their job role without agreement, uh, being demoted without good reason reducing an employee's salary or withdrawing a benefit, there they would be express um, terms. Another one I come across some um, in practice occasionally is requiring an employee to change their place of work if it involves more than a reasonable commuting distance from their home. Many employers think that if there's a mobility clause, that gives them carte blanche to move an employee from you know, Aberystwyth to Land's End, but it, but it doesn't, does it? No, no, because mobility clauses must be reasonable. So, A breach of an express term, like the term to pay wages or a term conferring other benefits, can amount to a fundamental breach entitling an employee to resign. What about implied terms? We've all heard of the implied term of trust and confidence. Can you explain what that is, Mark Jones? I can. Um, Well, it it, it stems from um, a a case from 1997 in, in the House of Lords, Malik and Bank of Credit and Commerce and International. Uh, And I will quote, because I have it in front of me, uh, from Lord Steen, who said, the implied obligation extends to any conduct by the employer likely to destroy or seriously damage the relationship of trust and confidence 
between employer and employee. Now, I'm just going to pause there because there, there are actually five definitions, weren't there, in the judgment? They were all very, very slightly different. And the others talked about um, acting in a manner either calculated or likely to destroy or seriously undermine uh, trust and confidence. So as well as conduct likely to destroy it, it's also, it also covers conduct calculated to destroy it. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that, that, that is correct. Let's break that down. What, what's the difference between conduct that's calculated to destroy or undermine trust and confidence and conduct that's likely to destroy or undermine trust and confidence? Well, I would say the first would suggest a, a, a positive motive, for want of a better word, on the part of, a, of the employer. Uh, and the second is a consequence of an employer's actions. So uh, I can give some examples. Um, so if you were looking at um, the second part, ca- uh, uh, something that was likely, that could be, say, a poor handling of a grievance. That is something that is likely to be a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence. But whereas, say, uh, subjecting an employee to disciplinary proceedings, which are manifestly unreasonable, that is something you could argue is calculated to destroy the implied term of trust and confidence. There's a section in the definition that's often missed out by employees. Uh, Because if you go back to the definition in Malik and BCCI of trust and confidence, it's where the employer, without reasonable and proper cause, acted in a manner either calculated or likely to destroy or seriously undermine the implied term of trust and confidence, without reasonable and proper cause. So if the employer has a good reason for doing what it's doing, is that going to be a breach of trust and confidence and enable the employee to claim constructive dismissal? In short, no. You you gave a couple of examples, or I think you gave the example of a badly run disciplinary or grievance process uh, as an example of what could potentially be a breach of implied trust and confidence. Are there any other things that could be such a breach or you commonly see as such a breach? Yes. Uh, not to treat an employee in an arbitrary capricious or inequitable manner. Uh, That's something that I would say is distinct from mutual trust and confidence. Uh, But because we're talking about mutual trust and confidence, there there are quite a few things that that could amount uh, to such a breach. Uh, And I'll give some examples. The common one that that we see is, is failure to provide an employee with a reasonable opportunity to obtain redress in respect of a grievance. We have uh, an inept raising of work issues while an employee is on sick. That is not serious or urgent. Subjecting an employee to an excessive workload, causing damage to their health. Creating an intolerable working environment, causing damage to an employee's health. Setting, in, setting an employee up to fail by giving them um, unreasonable workload or, or setting unreasonable targets, making false allegations against an employee, undermining an employee's authority, subjecting an employee to bullying, harassment or discrimination, 
failure to make reasonable adjustments when an employee has a disability and forcing an employee to work in breach of health and safety laws. I think there are some examples there. You mentioned uh, earlier the concept of a last straw, uh, and I want to come back and discuss that after this. There's a company that specialises in recruiting HR people. Uniquely, Recruitment HR is run by practising HR people who really understand HR. So if you're looking to fill an HR role, or you're looking to find one, visit www.recruitmenthr.co.uk. That's www.recruitmenthr.co.uk. You're listening to Employment Law Matters with me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'm joined by Mark Jones from Marjon Law, and we're discussing constructive dismissal. Uh, Mark, what sometimes happens is an employee decides to resign after a series of things happens that they're not happy about, and they'll say something pushed them over the edge, known sometimes as the last straw that broke the camel's back. And the law of constructive dismissal does deal with this last straw situation. Can you just explain what the law says, please? Yes, thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, we've, we've got useful guidance uh, from the Court of Appeal in Waltham Forest and, and in Malajou. Uh, and what they basically said was the last straw must contribute something to the breach. Although what it adds might be relatively insignificant. So, so the last straw must not be utterly trivial. Uh, the act does not have to be the same character as earlier acts complained of. It is not necessary to characterise the last straw as unreasonable or blameworthy conduct in isolation, although in most cases it, it likely, it's likely to be so. An innocuous act uh, that's something that's minor or inconsequential by the employer cannot be a last straw, even if the employee genuinely but mistakenly interprets the act as hurtful and destructive of their trust and confidence in the employer. And the test of whether the employer's trust and confidence has been undermined it is an objective one. So, so what I think you're you're saying, forgive me for for putting it in my own words, is that under the law of constructive dismissal, the whole series of events, the whole range of complaints an employee has about an employer's behaviour can be added together to see if cumulatively it's serious enough to justify resignation. And just as the last straw doesn't need to weigh very much to break the camel's back, the last event doesn't need to be something very serious to be enough for constructive dismissal. It's just got to add something to tip the balance and amount to a sufficient reason to justify resignation. Is, yes, is that yes, a fair that's summary? correct. It, it, the, the last straw doesn't have to be a breach of contract in itself. It has to amount to something, but it can't be trivial. And once something is serious enough to amount to a fundamental breach, whether it's a one-off act or a last straw, can the employer cure that breach, for example, by apologising or by paying the shortfall of wages and thereby stop the employee construct, uh, claiming constructive dismissal? In short, no. 
which sounds very unfair. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. That's what the law says. But to me, that sounds tremendously unfair. If I underpay you £100 in your salary, and then I say, oh, sorry, a day later, didn't realize I underpaid you £100. Here it is. Arguably, the day late payment is a repudiatory breach and the employee is entitled to say constructive dismissal. I'll have a year's salary, please. <laughs> Am I missing something? Because to me, that sounds unfair, although I agree that represents the law. I think it does represent the law. And, but as we all know, the, the law can be an ass in, in some circumstances. I think what you would, uh, you would have to, to look at in this situation uh, and, and put it in some form of context and whether an employee is likely to resign and bring a claim for constructive unfair dismissal when they've received their wages a day late. Of course, it's, it's going to be difficult, I think, for them to do that, again, without notice and just to do it on a whim. Um, but yes, in practice, I think unlikely. But as the law is, it, I, I think it's, it's legitimate. Right, Mark Jones, my challenge to you for the rest of this podcast, we've, we've mentioned between us two types of ruminant animals. We've mentioned the camel and you've now mentioned the ass. So my challenge to you is to get another ruminant animal in before the end of this discussion. Um, and just, just so you can think about it, we've got sheep, we've got goats, we've got giraffes. I'll leave it to you. That, that is my challenge. Um, here we go. I think I've just got one. You can be an absolute deer and, and uh, do this for me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right. Shut up, Daniel. Let's get on with this. Let's look first uh, at the situation where the employee decides to resign. Does the breach need to be the sole cause of resignation? So just to give an example, Mark Jones, if somebody resigns uh, in part because they haven't been paid properly and in part because their spouse wants to move to a different part of the country, does the fact that they are partially motivated by two different things mean that the employee cannot claim constructive dismissal? In essence, uh, it doesn't. Providing there is a breach of contract, that's all the employee needs to rely upon. And that it was uh, a part of the decision for them to resign? Uh, absolutely, yes. Presumably? Yes, of course. So, so I think the state of the law, I think the case is, is, is Logan and Sillen home. Tell me if you've got a better case example, you, you may well have, which is where the court, the, the tribunal said that the employer's breach, whether of an express term or trust and confidence, doesn't need to be the sole cause of the resignation. It doesn't even need to be the principal cause. It just needs to be a factor. Am I understanding that correctly, Mark Jones? Yeah, yes. Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. So building on that, does the employee have to tell their employer why they're leaving at the time? Does the resignation letter or the resignation conversation have to include, I'm resigning because you breached this term of my contract? Uh, no, they don't. But by not giving a reason at the time for the resignation, uh, that could damage a subsequent claim for constructive dismissal because you then have evidential difficulties and you're always going to um, have the argument from the employer in that wasn't the reason that the employee resigned. They actually resigned for something else. Didlaw is the only law firm in the UK specialising in disability discrimination and workplace health issues. Contact the experts for a free initial consultation. They're nice people offering a quality service, giving practical advice. 
www.didlaw.com. That's D-I-D-L-A-W. www.didlaw.com. You're listening to me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'm in discussion with employment lawyer Mark Jones from Marjon Law on the topic of constructive dismissal. Mark, I want to turn to the third element of constructive dismissal. We've got fundamental breach. We've got resignation in response. And third, the employee mustn't have waived the breach. What what does that mean? Well, waive uh, essentially means that the employee hasn't delayed too long before accepting that breach. If they have delayed for too long, then they would have deemed to have affirmed the contract and accepted that breach. Uh, Can you put that in English? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they can't wait too long. If they wait too long, then they won't be able to bring a claim. So how long is too long? And I'm I'm desperately hoping you can tell me the answer to this because I don't know. There is no set automatic length of time, in, in short. We've got a number of cases where, you know, uh, we've got a few weeks uh, would be seen as too long. We've got six weeks. Uh, and and I think in one case, we had 18 months where it's been argued that the individual hadn't affirmed the breach. But essentially, it's it's due to the circumstances of a particular case. I think it's uh, it's what's called a mix a mixture of both law and facts. Yeah, I think the point is that delay of itself isn't the crucial issue. It's more about whether the delay indicates that the employee has chosen to keep the employment contract alive. And if the delay indicates they've chosen to keep the employment contract alive, they lose the right to later turn around and say, actually, this employment contract's dead in the water. And I'm now claiming constructive dismissal. Are there factors to take into account when deciding whether the employee has waited too long? I think the main factor and the the one that you you see often in practice is an employee's ill health. That's often a a bone of contention in a lot of constructive dismissal cases. Uh, And in essence, did that prevent the employee from resigning the very fact that they were off sick? Now, that in itself may not be a reason. And and that's because if, say, the employee had been participating in email correspondence with their employer, they were able to instruct their solicitor to write letters to their employer and alike, then arguably the fact that they were suffering from ill health wasn't an impediment on them resigning. Then you've got other situations where, you know, somebody, the the prospects of, of, of getting another job are extremely grave. Um, and that could be, you know, their, their age or, or the type of thing that they do. And that in itself may cause a delay in a decision to resign. And, and then we we have the, you know, working under protest where the employee will will be vociferous in, in complaining about what the employer has done. 
uh, and will expressly state that, you know, I'm not accepting it in order to buy some time to decide whether they are actually going to resign or not. Now, let's assume that an employee does establish they were constructively dismissed and, and establishes that their employer was in repudiatory breach of contract. There's a big consequence for the employer, particularly if it's an, empl- an employer with somebody in a sales position or a senior role that often isn't thought or talked about. What is that, Mark Jones? <laughs> That's their post-termination restrictive covenants, which in a lot of employment contracts for senior staff, especially in sales, where you don't want them to go off to a competitor, uh, you, you don't want them to solicit clients and customers and deal with them. By virtue of the fact that you've had a finding of a breach of contract, of course, those restrictions would fall. And the reason for that is is that an employer can't rely on its own breach in trying to enforce the provisions of a contract. Mark Jones, thank you very much. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, if they're looking at instructing you, what's the best way for somebody to do that? Yeah, they can contact me via the website, which is www.marginlaw.co.uk or send me an email. That's M-A-R-J-O-N, margin law no dot dot co dot uk or mark that's m-a-r-c at margin law dot co dot uk thank you mark jones if you're interested in learning more about constructive dismissal do have a look at my small book on constructive dismissal which you can find on amazon next week i'm speaking with simon stephen of gowling on the interesting topic of grievances about grievances and do have a look at www.hrinnercircle.co.uk for more information about what membership of the HR Inner Circle can do for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for Employment Law Matters on your podcast app. All reviews help grow this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'll speak to you next week. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.